Hi, welcome back to The Horrors. Hi, I'm Elise. I'm Shay. And we're here today with a twofer episode. Another long listen, so grab a snack (laughs) as we talk about housewives today. Mm -hmm. So how'd this idea come to be? We like to be aware of upcoming holidays. And recently, Mother's Day happened. Last year in 2022, we covered the Babadook in honor of Mother's Day. In April this year, we covered some Earth eco horror themed movies in honor of Earth Day. This year, we are covering two movies that focus on the housewife. Again, for Mother's Day, a little bit belated, but still here nevertheless. Yeah, talking about the trope and how it's evolved, and we thought the best way to do that was to find two representations of it 40 years apart, 50 Mm -hmm. 50 years apart, I guess. But yeah, so we are covering The Stepford Wives from 1975 and Don't Worry Darling, which took the world by storm last year in 2022. Mm-hmm. And we'll start by talking about the original Stepford Wives. It was, at the time of its release, one of the first of its kind in the horror movie genre. And as you'll hear, Don't Worry Darling pulls directly from that movie. So I think it makes sense to kind of set the foundation before we get into both iconic films. Yeah, they're both captivating in such different ways. Yeah, such different ways. So we'll start with our Stepford ladies. We have Catherine Ross starring as Joanna Eberhardt. Catherine Ross is in many things, but she's really well known for her role as Elaine Robinson in The Graduate. Were you the one that I watched The Graduate with? No, my only concept of The Graduate is that line in 500 Days of Summer where Joseph Gordon-Levitt saying that he had a complete misrepresentation of the movie The Graduate, Mm -hmm. but I never watched The Graduate. I watched it once, and I also think I had a misunderstanding. (laughs) (laughs) Because at the end, wait, I must have watched it with Linda. Okay. (laughs) And it's supposed to be funny, I guess, but we didn't think it was funny. That's all I know. But you know what? I'm much more sophisticated now. Maybe I should go back and watch it and really pick up on those comedic moments. Anyway, next we have Paula Prentice as Bobby Marco. Best character in this movie. I'm absolutely obsessed with Bobby Marco. I think we need to have a side segment to March Madness where it's just like best friend madness. That's what I find that we're loving so much is like, (laughs) who is it in The Descent that we loved so much? Beth. Beth! Also, Molly from Fresh. Yeah, Like, there's so many good best friends in these movies, and Bobby's, like, the perfect best friend. She's so good. She is in several film and TV roles, and most recently, she was in the 2016 Netflix film, I Am the Pretty Thing That Lives in the House. And that is, like, a gothic supernatural horror film, which will come up again in a little bit. Next, we have Nanette Newman as Carol Van Sant. I'm also kind of obsessed with Carol Van Sant. Really? (laughs) She's, I don't know what it is about Carol Van Sant. She's just around. And obviously, we're going to learn why that is. But I think she's really funny. I don't know if she's always meant to be funny, but to me, she is. She gives a great performance. She really does. And then we have Tina Louise as Charmaine Wimpers. And she is Ginger from Gilligan's Island. Wow. Isn't that cool? Love that. And she is also most recently in the 2016 film, I Am the Pretty Thing That Lives in the House. What a reunion. Yeah. And so on the heels of our recent episode about the woman in black, which focuses on some gothic horror tropes, I thought that both of these women being in the Stepford Wives and then later reuniting again on the same cast of that Netflix film, I thought that was kind of cool. I love how all these things, they just kind of overlap, these trends and these actors and these directors. It's really cool when that happens. 
Yeah, like even seeing who's in contention for Saturn Awards every year. Like I remember we just talked about Sigourney Weaver beating out Virginia Madsen or it was something like that Mm -hmm. to some degree. Like I love all of this overlap for sure. Moving into the pre-plot trivia, this film is directed by Brian Forbes, and the movie is based on a novel of the same name by Ira Levin, and he was originally going to write this as a stage play until he realized that there were too many characters, and so he turned it into a novel instead. And the novel, I believe, is 1972, so really recent when the film was made three years later. Director Brian Forbes claims that Diane Keaton originally was cast in the role of Joanna, but she turned it down the night before signing her contract because her analyst got bad vibes from the script. (laughs) (laughs) And then after the movie was released, there was a feminist demonstration against it, decrying it as being sexist. And one of the protesters hit director Brian Forbes over the head with her umbrella. Catherine Ross commented on the incident in the documentary The Stepford Life in 2001 about the making of the movie, stating that this was a powerful testimony to how the movie affected the protesters. And I think that's really interesting that this movie had such a strong effect that it brought people out protesting against it. In one way, you know, I'm reading this as somebody looked at the Stepford Wives and felt offended with how women were being portrayed. But I'm sure there were other women watching this and feeling offended that they were being compared to robots for being housewives. It's like, what side of that argument is this protest on? I'm not really sure, but I feel like there are a lot of ways that women could have looked at this in 1975 and felt maybe underrepresented or misrepresented based on what we're seeing. I was about to say, if anything, I feel like this movie was very brave for its time Mm -hmm. in the sense that women could be more than what their marriages or white picket fences were subjecting them to. Because, I mean, our protagonist is part of like a women's group in New York City before she moves and is crying out that she can be a photographer and she can be all of these different things. If anything, I feel like this movie is meant to upset men being like, this is how you see women. Mm -hmm. And I also thought it was interesting, and we'll talk about this when we get to Don't Worry Darling, but I really appreciated how in The Stepford Wives, we see the perspective of the outsiders, Joanna and Bobby, right away. Like, they're the ones being like, the fuck are these ladies doing? (laughs) But in Don't Worry Darling, we see somebody who's already accepted her role within this very cultish housewifey role, and then sees the dissonance from outside in another character, Margaret. That is kind of what causes some disarray in her own perception of what she's doing in her character and things like that. So I appreciated that there was a differentiation. We're on Joanna's side from the very jump in this movie. But in Don't Worry Darling, we're kind of looking at Florence Pugh and being like, girl, what you doing? Mm. And then she has to do the same thing, being like, girl, what am I doing? Yeah, I would like to return to that idea. Kind of like the immersive effect that Don't Worry Darling has. This movie right away, like you said, I am on Joanna's side and I'm immediately on my toes. But in Don't Worry Darling, like I think you're sucked into that narrative. And it's like when you realize it's crumbling beneath our Florence Pugh's character, like I feel it crumbling beneath myself as well. And it's kind of a weird conflicting feeling. But I love that. Yes. For sure. Yeah, I didn't mean to jump ahead, but it was just really interesting, for sure. There are so many, I think, interesting things about both of these movies separately and, of course, together. So let's talk about it. Yeah. So we open with the Stepford Wives in Manhattan. We see our character, Joanna, our protagonist. She's smoking and looking outside the window as her house is packed up. She looks very sad to be leaving the situation that she's in. But she goes downstairs and meets her children outside, helps load her kids into this car, assisted by a bellhop. As they wait for dad slash husband, she takes this photograph of a man carrying a mannequin across the street. 
And I wrote, still probably the tamest thing to see in New York City, but this is meant to be this very Marvel thing, this very Marvel site that you can only get in the big city. Her husband, Walter, and their puppy, Fred, join them. Immediately, Walter's nagging his wife for doing a great job cleaning, meaning that she didn't clean up the apartment well enough to his liking before leaving. But through dialogue, we learn that we are moving to Stepford, Connecticut from Manhattan. So we get a moving credits montage, and as they arrive, Walter notes that they won't even have to lock the doors here. Isn't that great? Mm -hmm. Where Joanna obviously seems more upset about leaving the city than him. I really loved the sequence because it reminded me of another very funny moving sequence that we've covered. I was like, LOL, at these moving men in Canadian tuxedos, <laughs> they're trying to pivot this whatever up the stairs and they deny coffee and says they're not allowed to drink anything on the job except beer. And I'm like, oh my God, this is like the Hellraiser scene. Yes. Yeah, like Julia's ignoring these moving men completely where at least Joanne is trying to be a little more accommodating with coffee. But I just thought it was like the same sequence. It was very funny. So shortly after they arrive, Walter is outside walking around the grounds of his new gorgeous big, big house. And the neighbor, Carol Van Sant, pops over with a housewarming casserole. And she gifts it to Walter. She mentions, keep the dish as long as you like. She's very soft-spoken. She's very mellow. Walter seems to be looking at her a little bit lustily. And Carol Van Sant is a gorgeous woman. And Carol also is speaking with this mid-Atlantic-esque accent, which from my understanding is an accent that has some mixed characterizations between British and American speaking. It just sounds more refined. Very highbrow. Yeah. And Walter seems very interested in her. She also seems a little bit interested in him. Like it feels like there's a sense of sensuality in this brief interaction over the casserole, but then it's short-lived. She walks away and he carries the casserole inside. I know, because it never really goes anywhere for the rest of the movie, but it's more so I think Walter is seeing in Carol what he wishes Joanna would be more like. Yes, and I think it sets the foundation for not only what Walter wants to see in Joanna or experience from Joanna, but what this community as a whole wants to see and experience from women. As if like the only way Carol knows how to interact with men is one that's coded with this sensuality, which continues to come into play. Yeah, especially because later Walter is walking the dog outside and he encounters her husband, Ted. He goes on to say, she cooks as good as she looks. There's like a knowing nod there too. And I'm like, this is weird. Yeah, so Ted and Walter seem to be in cahoots. She cooks as good as she looks. What? Okay, we're getting the sense that there's some pre-existing communication between these neighbors. The next day, we see another scene with Joanna and Walter. She asks him point blank why they moved. Walter gives some excuses about the space. There's room for her, dark room for her photography in this house. We could tell that Walter is like super horny during this conversation. He like really wants to sleep with Joanna, but she's tired. Rightfully so, because they're moving, which is, I think, one of the most stressful things you can ever fucking do. But he asks her, did you ever make it in front of a log fire? As if to say, like, did you ever fuck in front of a log fire? And she goes, not with you. (laughs) Which I love. Exactly. And he's wearing like this ugly t-shirt that looks like his kids made him, but it doesn't fit him well. And I wrote, someone get this balding ass bro away from this gorgeous woman. (laughs) Because Joanna is hot. Like she is Mm -hmm. so hot. And Walter looks 15 years her senior, at least, and just does not look like an attractive man. And I will say that is a theme, both in The Stepford Wives and in Don't Worry Darling, these gorgeous women are with these whatever dudes. Mm -hmm. So later, Joanna puts the their daughters on the bus 
And she sits at the table reading a newspaper and just thinking. And then she later ends up meeting with an editor of The Chronicle, which is a local newspaper who interviews her. And I wasn't really sure what this is. I thought, is this a neighbor thing? Like this editor at The Chronicle catches wind that there's a new neighbor. She writes a piece about it to publish in the paper. Or does she know that Joanna has a little bit of a a reputation thus far as a photographer? There's some interesting dialogue here, though. Yeah. Because first thing she says is, tell me about yourself. What does your husband do? (laughs) Like, I was like, oh, yikes. Okay. So again, that's already like fronting what people find important here. She says that Walter is a lawyer and she's a sort of hopeful, would-be semi-professional photographer. Like, think about how many like steps down that she's saying to say, I do photography. Like, that is my job. But she is undercutting herself in every sense of the word. So I thought that was really interesting. And she goes on to say that she misses the noise of New York City and that move has been jarring for her. Later that day, she sees Carol Van Sant across the street and goes to return her casserole dish. But before she can get to her, she sees Carol's husband approach, Ted, and he tries to kind of ravish her by touching her breasts in broad daylight, untying her top to peek at her breasts. It's jarring. Again, this is happening in broad daylight in this suburban area. It's not what we expected. And then later, Joanna tells Walter about it when he comes home from work. He then makes a comment about wanting to christen every room before the mortgage is paid off. So he uses it as an opportunity to get at her about feeling like they're not sleeping together enough. Like maybe he would like to touch Joanna's breasts in the garden. But he also uses this as an opportunity to talk about how he's met the other commuters and how they told him about this men's association and that it's a bit of an honor that they've asked him to sit in on a meeting. And even Joanna's like, why is it an honor? Yeah, she's immediately turned off to the fact that it's a men's association. Like, she's immediately sensing some sexism here. She then confronts him about an apparent pattern he has of asking for her opinion, but then never actually listening to it anyway. And we find out, much like he asks for her opinion about the men's association, but he had already joined, he had also looked at this house before he told her about it, put a down payment on the house before he asked her if she wanted to move there, if she liked it enough. And now he's joining this club under the guise of asking her opinion, but clearly already making up his mind to join it in the first place. Yeah, I just wrote, get him, Joanna. Like, this is the most confrontational character I think we've had in a I while. I agree. In terms of, doesn't even have to build. And we, I think we see this a lot in Florence Pugh's character in Don't Worry, Darling, where you can tell she swallows a lot before she explodes, but Joanna's like, no, fuck you. That is such an interesting point because it feels like the horror starts to build from her effectiveness at communicating. Like with Florence Pugh, part of the discomfort comes from seeing her clearly wanting to say more than she is. But with Joanna, some of the discomfort starts to build because we know that she's very strong and we know that she is communicating her thoughts. But we also know that that might likely make the tide turn against her. And it's also interesting because this came out in 75, so it's presumed that it's set in present day, which is the 70s. Don't Worry Darling is set in the 50s. Yeah. So it's also thinking about, okay, so we have these movies coming out in different eras. Obviously, when we see a movie come out in 2022, we assume it's present day or somewhere near present day, unless we're told otherwise. And obviously, by the staging, costuming, music choices, we're told it's the 50s, 60s. So it's almost like we're getting an updated version of the 50s character in 2022, but she's still behind Joanna. It's like Joanna could be her daughter. Yeah. How old is Joanna? She has to be like 30 at most. At most. I mean, they got two kids. Yeah. Okay, so maybe not quite. Maybe her aunt. Older sibling. Older cousin. Older cousin. 
So later at the grocery store, this is my favorite Carol moment. Later at the grocery store, everyone's at the grocery store. It's the place to be. Roll up to the grocery. I love that there's a guy in the lot like directing traffic. Shows us how busy this place is. Maybe this is the only grocery store in Stepford. But he doesn't realize that somebody's pulling out of a spot, ends up hitting Carol's car as she is being directed to pull out of her spot. There's a little fender bender and immediately this woman approaches Carol. She's, I'm so sorry. I don't know who this woman is. Well, I don't think we know who this woman is, but I think the idea is that the valet guy or whoever, the grocery store attendant, was in the right telling this woman to back out, but Carol's the one who was dazed and wasn't waiting to do what she was told. Carol was dazed. Carol caused the accident, yeah, because she wasn't waiting for direction. Okay, that makes sense. like whatever, you know. She's a little She's all confused. confused. Yeah. So she complains of head pain. And even though it was, I mean, a very minor fender bender, she seems out of sorts. She is then loaded into an ambulance and she starts sounding really repetitive. She keeps saying the same phrase with the same inflection over and over again about, oh, it's just my head. I don't know what's wrong. So she sounds a little bit like a broken record, which is unusual. As she is driven away, Joanna points out to Walter that the ambulance turned in the opposite direction of the Stepford Hospital. So Joanna's prepping for bed. She goes downstairs and finds Walter drinking by the fire, and he looks upset. He tells her that he has joined the Men's Association, but Joanna's pressing him like, why did you come home so late? You're not telling me what's going on. And all we really get from him is that he tearfully says that he loves her and admits that they screwed up moving here. This makes Joanna feel guilty about coming onto him so hard earlier. So she tries walking back her statements saying like, oh, it's not that bad. I'll be okay. Let's just go to bed. It'll be okay, baby. And I think it's really showing about how women are not taught to tolerate other people's discomfort. We feel as though we have to fix it. We feel as though we have to placate it. And we even see this again. And don't worry, darling, many times. So even though he is agreeing with her, and even though he is validating her feelings almost by saying, I think we made a mistake, she has to put her own feelings to the matter aside to comfort him about Mm -hmm. it because she can't tolerate his discomfort, even though she's been living in discomfort this entire time. Yeah. The next day while Walter is doing his Walter thing, Joanna's like hanging out in her backyard meadow. There's like a meadow off of her property. It's amazing. I wrote Pearl, when'd you get here? (laughs) Oh, yeah. Because she's just wearing denim overalls, like with (laughs) no bra. Like, yeah. (laughs) And all of a sudden, some lady named Bobby Marco rolls up saying, hey, I heard you moved in. I've seen your work before in whatever magazine. It's amazing. I think we should be friends. It's the most sweet, genuine scene. Joanna seems to warm up to Bobby really quickly. She learns from Bobby that she had just moved into the area about two months before. Her husband is also in the association. They go back inside Joanna's house and hang out in the kitchen. Bobby has some really good lines where she's like, ah, finally a messy kitchen. She's praising Joanna for having a lived in home as opposed to what she's used to seeing from the neighborhood women, which are these like spotless museums. They become instant friends. Yeah, and she's raunchy, and I love her for being raunchy. She even says, yeah, her husband, I think, like, Dave, Dan, I don't know. He picked this place because of land values, and he's best in bed when the market's up. Like, (laughs) we don't see the other housewives talking like this. Like, she (laughs) is, like, all out there with all of her stuff, and we love her right away. So later that night, we get a phone call from Walter to Joanna talking about how Walter is now on a committee and wants to invite some of the guys over for a meeting. And the head of the men's association, a man named Diz, looks on approvingly as Joanna's like, yeah, why not? Whatever. 
Joanna is there making coffee. Diz comes in and starts watching her. He says, I like to watch women doing little domestic things. I'm like, fuck this man. Don't fuck this man. This man never deserves to be fucked. I hate this man. (laughs) Yeah. They have like this weird contentious conversation right away where he talks about, well, everyone calls me Diz because I used to work at Disneyland. And Joanna's like, I don't believe that. He's like, why? And she says, you don't look like someone who enjoys making other people happy. Like, this is the kind of, like, I was watching this movie and I was like, I need to be taking notes. Like, she says it. It's amazing. All of Walter's new guy friends are at the house, which he only gives her a 20-minute warning for their arrival, by the way, which is, like, really short notice. She was a little too pleasant for my liking in that way. I think it makes sense because she's an outspoken, opinionated, liberal woman, but, you know, she still lives in a society where there are certain expectations of her. So I think it makes sense that maybe she loves her husband. There's an expectation of her to be the homemaker. I don't think it's entirely unusual, even for her character, for her to be obliging in this sense. I know I'd be pissed, though. 20 minutes is really not a lot of time. And the fact that, like, she's okay with that small of a warning is like, wow. (laughs) But I think it's forgiven because Walter lets her sit in on this meeting and she's drinking a whiskey the entire time, which is a very masculine choice for a woman's drink. Yes. So I think that she feels empowered to be involved, but we get a lot of dissolves as they talk about very boring business stuff about fundraisers and tag sales and like whatever the fuck has to do with whatever the fuck they're doing. And they tell her something along the lines of, I'm sure you'll have great input, but then they never like actually ask her any questions. So it's all just very suspicious. And then there's a man there who is sketching her the whole time that this quote unquote meaning is happening. Again, no one is interested in what she has to say. This meeting seems to drag on forever and ever based on the way the scene is edited. Joanna finally says she's going to go check on the kids. And when she stands up and leaves the room, everyone stops talking, which is weird. She comes back in the room and then the artist shows Joanna the sketch and gives it to her. And apparently, after seeing the sketch, realizes that this man is actually a relatively famous artist. She didn't realize that he was the one that was there, and she's very flattered to have this sketch of herself. So later that night, Joanna's getting ready for bed, and Walter finally comes up, and Joanna's like, right off the bat, what a snooze fest. These guys are (laughs) so boring. You would never hang out with these guys in Manhattan. Like, what are we doing here? But Joanna makes it clear that she especially doesn't like Diz, and Walter tries to argue, well, he runs a multi-million dollar corporation, and again, Joanna with the one-liner is like, what do they make, sleeping pills? (laughs) Like, it's so fucking funny like she has all the sass in the world and she's like you would never hang out with these people like who are you turning into like what is going on but walter argues well i like them and they suit me now so obviously there's some dynamic changing here later there's a party being hosted at diz's house he's a bachelor from what i understand he asks a woman to swim and she thanks him it's so weird it's like thank you For what? But anyway, Carol is there, Carol Van Sant, and she sees Bobby and Joanna arrive, and Carol is wearing really interesting clothes. I wrote, what the fuck is Carol wearing? Yeah, it's like a mixture. It pulls from like a Victorian silhouette, but also like a house on the prairie silhouette. I wrote Dorothy from Wizard of Oz meets Little House on the Prairie. Yeah. Like modesty. Like it's, it's like weird. House dress. Like it's like a full length apron that comes up over the bust with frills and down, but she also has like a pale pink dress on underneath. Like it's very modest. But at the same time, like her waist is accentuated. We can see that she's very perky breasts, very wide set hips. Her makeup is 
fully done on this hot summer day. It's a pool party. Like it this is. is not the correct attire for a pool party, especially when Bobby and Joanna roll up in like crop tops, no bras. I, I love it. it. I need those outfits. Exactly. They look incredible. The contrast is so interesting. She's talking to Bobby and Joanna about these drinks that she makes or something. She takes a drink and then remarks that she'll just die if she doesn't get this recipe. But then she just keeps on saying that. She kind of falls into a broken record spell where she walks around at the party and she keeps going up to different small groups of people. I'll just die if I don't get this recipe. Again and again, people are starting to notice that she's repeating herself. The men start looking anxious. And then her husband escorts her away and scolds her publicly for her drinking. It's not the party anymore. And we cut to Carol telling Bobby and Joanna about how she used to have a drinking problem and apologizes to them for her behavior. And then Bobby, after Carol leaves, says to Joanna, if I had to apologize every time I got smashed, I'd wander around my whole life saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) But I love how they're like, why are you apologizing? Like, it's a pool party with the neighborhood. Like, you're supposed to have fun. But it is just an uncomfortable interaction with Carol. And again, more of this discomfort is being sown. So this inspires them to talk about how they both used to be part of a women's liberation group in New York City, because Bobby is also from New York City, and they decide to start one here, because if there can be a men's association, there should also be a women's association. But as they go around to recruit, they find the other housewives are resistant. They say they don't have time. They say they're not interested. They're happy as they are. They enter a woman's house that they know in an attempt to recruit, and they overhear her having sex with her husband, Frank. And we know his name is Frank because she says it over and over again. I wrote, Frank's got a praise kink because Mm -hmm. she's all like, you're the master, Frank. You're the best. So, of course, they're sitting there giggling, teeheeing, and then finally excuse themselves. And they end up hearing later that there's this woman, Charmaine, who seems game for the Women's Association. So they meet her at her casual backyard tennis court. Nice. Joanna gets athletic as Bobby watches with champagne. I wrote, I am Bobby. (laughs) I will watch. I will watch. Give me the drinks. I will watch. I am not participating in the sport. But after Joanna and Charmaine have their match, we learn that Charmaine is very much like them. She's smoking with them, gossiping with them. She even has a maid, which is showing that she's not interested in the housework. She is very much interested in the org and having what she calls a bitching session. (laughs) Yes. Meanwhile, as Bobby and Joanna are working to try to create a network of women in their neighborhood, there has been this linguist guy, Claude, who has been communicating with Joanna about wanting to do some kind of linguistic study with her where he needs her to be reciting certain words into a microphone so he can study her speech pattern and things like that, which she willingly agrees to. But when he comes to her house this time... She says, I will not go through with this unless you convince your wife and her friends to start coming to our meetings because they are having such a hard time connecting with women right now. They only have three. And it seems like Claude agrees because later we see that there is a meeting and there are more women there. Yeah, Joanna tries to engage them, tries to have them talk about what bothers them, which leads to Joanna revealing that it hurts, that she feels that Walter cares more about his job as a lawyer than her. Charmaine says that her husband, Ed, only married her for her looks, and she believes that he never loved her. And then we zoom in on this other wife in the group, and she just says, I didn't bake a thing yesterday. (laughs) 
And then the conversation starts being overtaken by the other women in the group. So not Bobby, Joanna, or Charmaine. And these women are just talking about like what best cleaning product works to get up stains. And Bobby's like looking out in horror being like, oh my fucking God, who are these women? What is going on? Like they very much are on their own planet. So the meeting is a total flop. And later Joanna is at home. She decides she's going to take Freddy the dog for a walk. And while she's out, we see Walter call up his boys and invite them over. And they all show up, like all eight of them. And they start doing some investigating. And they're clearly collecting info, which is also something we're led to believe about those voice recordings that she's making. The sketch paired with the voice recordings, paired with these men coming over and inspecting the space. Like they're gathering intel on her for something. And while Joanna is with Freddy, he runs away down some kind of dark driveway. And as she goes after him, she's confronted by a police officer letting her know that she is at the driveway leading to the men's club, which is this huge mansion. And the officer fills in some information that the house was originally built in the 1870s, later left derelict, but restored by the men's committee. And he warns her not to walk around alone at night. And she says something like, I moved to the suburbs so I could walk alone at night, which I think just underscores like as a woman, you can never really be safe. But she leaves with her dog. And shortly after... Diz and Ed, Charmaine's husband, back out of the driveway and we see a brief scene. Ed is clearly distraught. It looks like he's upset. He's drinking, but we don't find what's up right now. So the next day, Bobby and Joanna are in the store. They witness the couple that they saw fucking in the pharmacy and they teehee about it. And then- <laughs> I love it so much. I know they're like they're just best friends and it's really showing that they're really close and they have the same sense of humor and then the older lady who was interviewing Joanna in the driveway in the beginning of the film approaches them being like did you hear the news a black family is moving into town and we're like oh fuck (laughs) which again if you think about the time I guess that is something Marvel but the old lady goes on to say how liberal the town is how they even used to have a women's club which makes Bobby and Joanna perk up and do some research and when they do this research they find out that carol was the president mm-hmm. so when they ask carol about it later she says they got bored and disbanded because they weren't being useful she drones on and on about how she just wants to give ted a good home and make the kids successful she's sober now their sex life is better and she's happy without all the distraction Later, Joanna goes into a gallery to try to sell her photos, but it doesn't end up working out. But as she's away, we see that Fred is being taken to a weird secondary location. Yeah, Freddy the dog, where are you going? No, we're good. So Bobby and Joe, I I started calling them Bob and Joe. (laughs) Bobby and Joanna realize that Freddy is missing, so they go to look for him. I love that they leave like the older kid in charge. It reminds me of the John Mulaney skit about the horse watching the dog. Yes. yes. <laughs> so they leave like the 13 year old in charge of like the 10, 9, 8, and 7 year old. They go to look for him. Out in the bout, they see that Charmaine's beloved tennis court is being bulldozed up. When they go in to see her and ask what's going on, she says that she just wants to make her husband happy. He always hated the tennis court. He wants a pool. And we see that Charmaine is just not the same woman that we had previously known. She is starting to act like all of the other Stepford wives. And Bobby and Joanna are really concerned. And this happened after a weekend away together. Mm, mm, So pivotal mm. event. Okay, okay. 
So later, Bobby is telling Joanna about this idea of the Texas tranquilizer, (laughs) saying that there's something in the water in El Paso that makes them less violent. And she suggests that there's something in the water here to make the housewives turn into drones. Through some funny back and forth, Joanna tells Bobby about this chemist that she lost her virginity to, her college sweetheart. (laughs) So Bobby's like, why don't we ring him up? And Joanna's like, no, but of course they end up doing that. The chemist goes on to say, well, you have water in your water, pretty much saying that there's nothing going on here. There's nothing weird going on. But we get this little cute moment between the chemist and her saying, we blew it, didn't we? Kind of showing that Joanna would have been happier with the chemist, but Walter seemed like the safer bet, which I think is interesting in the characterization of the housewife character in general. Meanwhile, Bobby and Joanna have started house hunting because they're determined to get out of Stepford. Bobby mentions on one of their house hunts that she's going away with her husband Ed that weekend. Would Joanna watch the kids? And of course, Joanna agrees. Later, Joanna, who is still looking around to see if there's a gallery she can present her work, she gets the idea from watching Bobby's kids to take these photos of them playing in the sprinkler, in the pool, outside in the summer grass. She takes pictures and takes them to the photo gallery and the guy likes them and she is accepted to, I don't know, present her work or have some kind of scholarship or something. And she's so excited. Bobby is now back from her weekend trip. So she goes to tell her about her new photograph opportunity, but she sees that Bobby is not acting right. No, she got got her house is clean. She's wearing a very housewife-like dress. She's saying that her weekend away got her head on straight and that she's more focused on being a better wife. Obviously, Joanna's like, oh no, what the fuck is going on? So she drives home in a panic, tries to tell Walter the story, but Walter, of course, calls her crazy. Walter even then starts going off about their house not being sparkling, their kids being dressed like they belong on welfare, quote unquote, and that she should pay more attention to her family and less on her little pictures. Joanna's like, fuck it, we're moving. And he's like, well, you got to see a psychiatrist before I agree to that. So later she finds a lady psychiatrist, which is not the psychiatrist that Walter recommended, of course. And this woman resides outside of Stepford. Once she explains the situation, the psychiatrist reassures her she's being rational and how she feels. But then Joanna goes into her theory about how all the housewives are kind of under this trance, under this level of control. And she even says, if I'm wrong, I'm insane. And if I'm right, it's worse than I thought, which I think is such a sad line. And through this dialogue, it appears that four months appears to be the timeline of how long women last in Stepford before being taken over by this housewifeliness. (laughs) Housewifeliness. Housewifeliness. So the therapist assures her, listen, I got to go away for a little bit, but we're going to talk again. But Joanna's like, I'm not going to be here when you get back. She'll be like one of those robots in Disneyland. Oop. Where does that sound familiar? Mm, The man named Diz. So instead, the psychiatrist urges her to get out of Stepford for the next few days. So that's what she does. She drives home, gets the prescription. And as she looks around her dark house, she realizes her kids aren't there. Mm -hmm. But who is there? Walter. He does a jump scare and is totally evasive about where their kids are. And as Joanna is like yelling at him, like, where are my children? He urges her to lie down. She refuses. And they have a scuffle on the stairs where she eventually ends up locking herself in a bedroom and he backs off. But Joanna overhears him on the phone talking to the men from the Men's Association, assuring them that he thinks that he's handled the situation, but she ends up sneaking out to Bobby's to ask for help and realizes that Bobby is beyond saving. So as Bobby continues to brush her off, Joanna grabs a knife and says, when I cut myself, I bleed, and then ends up just fucking stabbing her in the chest. (laughs) Yeah, it's uncomfortable. And a during the plot trivia moment from IMDb, apparently Catherine Ross, the actress playing Joanna, had become such good friends with Paula Prentice, who's playing Bobby, 
she found this scene where she had to stab Bobby so troublesome that the director, Brian Forbes, ended up shaving the back of his hand and doing the scene for her. (laughs) Oh, like the actual stab? Like the actual stab is his hand because she just couldn't bring herself to do it. Aw, that's really sweet. It is really sweet. But Bobby doesn't plead. She just repeats, how could you do a thing like that over and over and over again, which is, again, exhibiting that Carol behavior from Mm -hmm. the pool party. She begins dropping things, repeating things, malfunctioning. And there's a bunch of bebop music in the background, like robot bebop music. So we're like, okay, that's helping us put some clues together. Meanwhile, a policeman arrives at Walter's, assures them that everyone's looking out for Joanna. So as the policeman leaves, Walter looks around downstairs He senses something and is then whacked by Joanna with a fire poker. Joanna demands to know where the children are, and Walter is able to say that they're at the Men's Association before eventually passing out or dying. I don't know. (laughs) He could die for all I care. (laughs) But Joanna spends a long time lurking around the Men's Association mansion when she hears her kids calling for her, but this turns out to be a recording played by Diz. So he traps her. Once she opens the door, she sees the audio tapes rolling. Diz is there. He confronts her. She asks him why they're doing this. He responds simply because they can and that it's perfect for both husband and wife. There's a chase scene where Diz chases her around this mansion. I guess there was also a moment where he like remotely locks the doors. So she has to search really hard to find a way out. He is slowly walking after her very like Michael Myers-esque. Finally, Joanna opens a final door into a room that is an exact replica of the master bedroom she has at her home. And she sees a animatronic version of herself, not yet complete. It has black eyes sitting at the vanity, combing its hair. And she is obviously shocked in place at what she's seeing. The replica takes a pair of stockings and pulls them tight and approaches Joanna. And we hear Joanna scream as Diz looks on. And it cuts to black. Yeah, and then later we wake up at a grocery store. We're switching perspectives between Carol and then Bobby. As they walk through the grocery store, mindlessly greeting each other in their sundresses and pretty little summer hats. And eventually we fall on Joanna as Bobby greets her. And we see that Joanna has now become accustomed to the housewiferiness of this place. And the final scene of the movie is her walking toward the camera. And there's a zoom in on her eyes which now look human and i even wrote like is this an invasion of the body snatchers situation like toward the end of that movie where that woman's faking it like i wanted some like tear falling out of her eye or i wanted Mm. something to show that she's just doing what she has to to survive but the conclusion that we are drawing from this is that joanna has been overtaken and is no longer herself anymore and that's how the movie ends Another interesting piece of trivia I found from this conclusion is that as we're seeing the women moving about the grocery store, we also see a brief moment of the quote unquote black couple that has just moved in. Did you see them? Yes, yes. They're kind of like arguing over like which brand of whatever to get. So apparently in the book, they have an actual role Mm. as opposed to just the mere mention that they have in the movie. In the movie, the wife's name is Linda, but in the book, it's Ruthann. And she's a children's book author. And the final chapter of the book is told from her perspective. And she is the one that notices Joanna's dramatic change in the ending. Mm. So like in the movie, we're watching from our own perspective. But in the book, it's Ruthann's perspective. Ruthann actually ends up surviving. And she's the only Stepford wife to survive the story. Although, of course, it's implied that she won't remain the sole survivor for long. 
I also read somewhere that the show Desperate Housewives, there's this one character, Brie, who is modeled after every character in this movie. She's like the redhead in Desperate Housewives. My mom used to watch this all the fucking time growing up. So like, (laughs) I have a weird working knowledge of Desperate Housewives, but she is very much this like robotic, like I cook, I clean, I do all of these Mm. types of things. And it's said that her character was very much informed by the performances of the actresses in this movie specifically. So that's The Stefford Wives from 1975. So we're going to move on to Don't Worry Darling from 2022. We shall. So who are the ladies in this? Okay, so first, of course, Florence Pugh as Alice Chambers. We know her. We love her. We do. We have Olivia Wilde as Bunny. She is also our director and co-producer. We have Gemma Chan as Shelley. She's an English actress. We've seen her in Crazy Rich Asians, Captain Marvel, Eternals, and many more. We have Kiki Lane as Margaret, best known for her roles in If Beale Street Could Talk and Native Son from 2019. Sydney Chandler as Violet. This is her debut role. So interesting to see if we'll see her in other like horror adjacent roles as we continue on with this podcast. And then we have Kate Berlant as Peg. She is an American comedian, which you can tell she's very much a comedian. Her debut role was in the 2002 episode or one of the 2002 episodes of Lizzie McGuire. She's been in other films like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and a Peacock comedy special called Would It Kill You to Laugh? So some pre-plot trivia. This, of course, is an American psychological thriller directed by Olivia Wilde, but it's from a screenplay by Katie Silberman based on the script by Carrie Van Dyke and Shane Van Dyke and Silberman herself. And Shane Van Dyke is Dick Van Dyke's grandchild. Fun! Nice! Olivia Wilde originally wanted to play the lead role, but she cast Florence Pugh after seeing her in Midsummer. Who wouldn't? Who wouldn't? There are many clear references to Alice in Wonderland in this film, like the main character's name being Alice, the fantasy world, which she unwittingly enters into, this idea of like windows and mirrors. And then, of course, Olivia Wilde's character's name is Bunny, which might be a subtle reference to the White Rabbit. I feel like this movie references a lot of other... Oh, yeah. Arguably better movies. I have a list. Oh, my God. I can't wait. I can't <laughs> Not wait. at this time. I wanted to give this little tidbit at the beginning, but there will be other things that we talk about at the end. So how do we open? So it's party time. We have Peg, Alice, Bunny with their husbands having a party, drinking. They're all balancing something on their head. They're having a great time. We realize that they're in a place called Victory, California in what appears to be the 1950s or 60s. And it seems like they are living a fun young adult life. We later find out that all three of these women and their husbands are neighbors. They live in the same cul-de-sac. But later we see Alice and her husband, Jack, driving home or driving around in the desert. And they're doing donuts in the dirt. And I literally was like, this is the most like eye contact ratio moment I have ever seen because they are not even looking at the road. They're doing donuts and they're gazing into each other's eyes. So immediately they're just this line between this like lust and this danger is very present. I literally wrote they're doing donuts in the bluffs. <laughs> very much prom night-esque. And I literally, in all caps, have in my notes, eye contact ratio. Because yeah, no, they're not looking at the road. It's so extreme. We then cut to a tennis court at a house. And I was just like, <gasps> imagery. Because again, remember Charmaine's tennis court in her backyard. And this is like a social way that these women meet is this tennis court. So I'm like, oh my God, isn't that fun? And then we get Alice and Jack in the kitchen. Jack's preparing to go to work. And then there's this rattling. 
And it seems like this rattling where things are falling off the shelves is a very normal occurrence. And we learn that it perhaps has something to do with Jack's job, which is very secretive. The men go off and do this thing that's highly confidential every day. The women don't really know very much about it, but they stay at home doing the wively duties. We see all of these men pull out of the cul-de-sac at the same exact time, coronated in their suits. I wrote, why don't y'all carpool? <laughs> and Why? Li- why don't Why they? don't y'all carpool? <laughs> and <laughs> literally all of these wives are standing around in the cul-de-sac waving their husbands off and like smiling at each other. And I grew up in a cul-de-sac. As a liver of a cul-de-sac, you would rather die than make eye contact with any of your neighbors. So the fact that these women are all standing around, like, waving their husbands off and acknowledging each other is proving that we're in some sort of weird alternate reality situation. So while the husbands are at work, the wives stay home. They do all the cleaning, washing, scrubbing. Later, it also seems like all the wives go to dance class, like a, a ballet class together. That day at dance class, a new girl is introduced, Violet, and she's the new guy's wife, and she is here at dance class. Later, after class is over, Bunny and Alice gossip by their houses, and they mention another woman who we haven't met named Margaret, who was not at class that day. She is another woman in the neighborhood. She lives in one of the houses in the cul-de-sac, in fact. But we don't know where she is. We don't know her deal. And then they do some more talking about Violet. What's her deal? Who is she? Etc. So later, Alice is cooking dinner while listening to Frank's radio show. And Frank seems to be the leader at Victory. He seems to be the man who's employing all of the husbands. He's very much a trusted man in this community. And his teachings are kind of gospel. She's making dinner and examines that as she goes to crack an egg, it's empty. So then she cracks every single egg in her hand and they're all empty. She seems very dazed and confused, being like, what the fuck is going on, but is broken out of her trance when Jack arrives home and greets her warmly with tongue. (laughs) Um, yeah. And she is all dolled up for his arrival. Like, full makeup, gorgeous dress, great jewelry, and immediately they start banging. I said, not the dinner, he has her instead. Yeah, and she's great with that. She just spent however many hours preparing like a steak dinner with potatoes and vegetables and bread. She is the one who pushes everything aside, plates, cookware, food onto the floor so that they can use the table to bang. If it wasn't already clear to you that this neighborhood was a little bit off. This is off. All that work. On the floor? On the floor. And she's the one that does it, which I think is really interesting. And I also think it's because the nature of the sex that they're having is her focused. He's Mm. giving her oral sex. Mm -hmm. So maybe it's the fact that I'm not worthy of this. All this effort doesn't matter because I'm receiving this pleasure. I'm making space for Mm. him. I I don't know. Or like, even though it's her focused, it still feels like what a heterosexual man would want from a woman as he's sleeping with her. Like he wants his tongue to be so good that she she pushes aside all of the gorgeous cooking mm-hmm. that she's just done. So it still feels very like, yes, she's experiencing this extreme pleasure, but it still feels like a fantasy version of how this scene would actually go from a male perspective. So later, Alice and Bunny are hanging at the pool with Violet. Alice reveals that her and Jack don't have children and both don't really want them right now. They're enjoying being with each other. And we get some commentary from Bunny that's proving that those two have a very healthy sex life and those two seem like the happiest couple in victory. But Alice is getting some black and white visions as the convo continues around her. A lot of these burlesque dancers, these ballet dancers, things that seem a little out of place but not yet disturbing to her. 
But then we see her looking at a diorama of the neighborhood and we have switched locations. We are no longer next to the pool. We're at a pool party at Frank's house. And I wrote, what is this? A neighborhood for ants because it's just (laughs) very small. But as she's examining this, we're learning that all of the husbands who work at the Victory Project live in the same neighborhood. So they're all very much connected. The community is very much connected in that way. Bunny and Alice have a very similar best friendship to Joanna and Bobby from the original. Like they're very carefree with each other. They seem to get along very well. There's a lot of mirroring conversation between Violet, Bunny, and Alice talking about their honeymoons and how Violet is adjusting versus the men, Jack, Bunny's husband, Dean, and this new guy, Bill, about how Bill is just really excited to be here. The other two guys are assuring him that the adjustment gets easier. But then Dean really lays into Bill about how lucky he is to even just be in Frank's house, to even be in his presence. So it's really showing that the men have a heightened admiration for Frank, whoever Frank is. Then we see Frank for the first time. It is Chris Pine (laughs) and his very hot wife, Shelly, talking about how they're starting a new way of living. I don't know how to describe this white man monologue. Like he's saying nothing but saying a lot at the same time, just about how they're doing things differently. And they're starting a new way of life. And they're just trying to create the lives that they all deserve and shit like that. That's perfect. That's That's it? That's all you need to know. That's (laughs) all you need to know. And what is even the goal of the Victory Project to create progressive materials for change? Like, There's nothing that says anything about anything. It's all so fucking vague, exactly. purposefully. The speech is like the definition of empty rhetoric. A lot of buzzwords that sound great and inspire maybe a lot of positive feelings. But like you said, there's no substance under those words. Meanwhile, while Frank is going on this white man monologue, he's interrupted by Margaret, who we could tell used to be friends with Alice and Bunny, but has since started exhibiting some erratic behavior. She does this publicly by saying, why are we even here? We shouldn't be here. So her husband, Ted, which I found is interesting, another parallel to the original. Ted is Carol's husband in the original. And Carol's the one that has the outburst at the pool party. (gasps) Oh my God. Right? Yes. So Ted takes Margaret away being like, oh, she's just not feeling well, whatever. Frank does some more white man monologuing to fix it, saying the enemy of progress is chaos. They're here to change the world. And even goes on to say, we need to credit our wives. We ask a lot of them, but discretion above all else, which again is showing that these women are kind of indebted to not sharing the truth about what they're experiencing, showing that secrecy is very much a value of this community. So later, Alice goes looking for Jack after this speech, but walks in on Ted chastising Margaret. Margaret goes on to say she doesn't sleep, she has bad dreams, that they're hiding her away, but Ted silences her and shuts Alice off from overhearing more of their discussion. Alice ends up finding Jack inside of Frank's bedroom, fixing his tie, and then they get horny again. Yeah, and he starts to try to sleep with her. She's like, no, there's so many people outside. I mean, they're at a party and they're in Frank's bedroom, but they end up having sex anyway. Alice looks and sees that Frank is actually there looking on as her and Jack are having sex. They make eye contact. No one says anything. He gets kind of a smirk on his face. And then he simply leaves as they finish the deed. 
So later, the housewives are at a department store or a mall. The setting was very confusing to me. But they go on talking about how Margaret's going to get Ted fired from the Victory Project due to her behavior. Alice tries to defend her, saying she's just having a hard time. But Bunny really presses in on Margaret, saying that she lost her mind and is responsible for killing her son. Mm. So a story is told about how Margaret walked into the desert, which we learn is off limits for anybody in the community. But Margaret took her son out into the desert, we're presuming to try to escape Victory, to try to escape the neighborhood, try to escape their circumstances. And Margaret claims that Victory took her son away from her to punish her, where everyone else just assumes that he died in the desert in some sort of obviously deprivation accident. But this inspires even Peg to kind of ask, like, do you ever think about what they're actually really doing out there at work? But Bunny is very quick to shut her down. It's becoming very clear that Bunny is very much like girls are too much drama, like Mm -hmm. very much one of those like, no, they have a purpose and we're just here to support them. We shouldn't question anything where it's clear that Alice is beginning to question that because she was friends with Margaret and Peg is going to, but Bunny seems to be the queen bee and is being like, no, we can't change what we're doing. Our men are changing the world. Alice gets more visions during this time of more distorted dancing, and then she wakes from a nightmare. So again, showing that she's beginning to get some experiences that are outside of her reality, but she doesn't exactly know what to make of them yet. So later, another day has arrived. Alice goes through with her cleaning rituals. And I love at this point in the movie, we've seen a couple days come and go, and we are familiar with the eggs and bacon scene, the cleaning of the window. Like, we're starting to see a pattern. She goes through her morning, and she seems just not as content to be doing those things. So she gets on a trolley. The trolley man seems a little puzzled. She spends her time on the trolley all the way out until the edge of the desert. As she looks out the window, she sees off in the distance beyond the mountain, a plane crashes. She asked the trolley man to take her out there so they can help whoever was just in this crash. The trolley man will not do it. So she gets out of the vehicle and starts walking into the desert on her own to see who is hurt, if there's anything she can do. She's humming in the desert, disoriented. And as she's walking, she approaches a weird little mirror house calling for help. It looks like a gazebo with mirrors around the side of it. It's like a weird little futuristic looking house, but everything is mirrors. And as she approaches the mirrors, she holds her hands up to them and receives some, I wrote, Suspiria-esque visions. Mm. Like very much of the 2018 remake. There's visions of blood, women dancing, I wrote Pearl style. Yeah! (laughs) Like very much in that way. And then of eyes dilating and she ends up waking up in bed, still dressed from that day. She hears some banging and walks out to hear Jack unsuccessfully cooking some dinner and listening to music. Comically bad at cooking. And this is also where I wrote, is Harry Styles meant to have an accent? And if so, where is it? (laughs) Because he sounds British half the time, but also sounds like he's putting on an American accent. And it wasn't until later in the movie where it's distinguished that he is intended to be British. But he's really bad at cooking, like doesn't even know he has to boil potatoes for mashed potatoes. Yes. Like so bad. But he says, hey, you were asleep when I got home. I decided I would make dinner. Don't do a thing. Don't lift a finger. But of course, she does have to lift a finger because he doesn't know what the hell he's doing. She accepts that what she experienced was a weird dream. Yeah, but she still seems very disturbed. So the next day, Jack leaves for work again. She's sleepily cleaning. And as she's inspecting spots in the window, we see that the wall behind her is closing up on her pretty fast. Mm -hmm. And she is crushed against the window. She's cleaning as if the walls are closing in on her, as if she's realizing some things that she can now not unrealize. 
She ends up pushing herself away from the window as if nothing happened. But then she gets a phone call from Margaret saying, you went out there, you saw it. They're lying to all of us. No one asks any questions. We can't stay here anymore, Alice. I'm not crazy, Alice. You know me. And even though we see in Alice's face that she is very much recognizing a lot of what Margaret is saying, she ends up silencing Margaret saying, like, you're ridiculous, you need rest, and hanging up on her. Later at dance, Alice sees Margaret in her own reflection. She screams, but when the rest of the dance company looks to her, we see that it's her reflection looking back at her. When she gets home from dance, she sees Margaret is standing outside on her roof. Alice approaches her, telling her to get down, but then Margaret slits her own throat and falls from the roof. And as Alice runs to her, trying to reach her, she is quickly surrounded by men in these red jumpsuits and dragged away. Later, Alice is trying to tell Jack what happened. Jack is saying that her husband, Ted, said that Margaret just slipped cleaning a window, that they're at the hospital now, but Alice is vehement that she slit her own throat. But Jack calls her hysterical and says, like, you just don't feel well. And Alice goes on to say, Jack, she was my friend. She came to me for help and I ignored her. This happened. I feel like it's my fault. She said they would come after her because she knew something. Why are they lying to us? What are they hiding? What are you even doing at the Victory Project? The development of progressive materials. What does that even mean? Like, what if this place is dangerous? Like, she's just kind of going off on all of these tangents. Jack reassures her the mission, what Frank is doing, it matters. Not everyone gets this opportunity. If you keep talking like this, you risk it. We could lose this life together. Please just get a hold of yourself. Just get a hold of yourself. He gets angry, but then pleading, like, just please, like, drop it, drop it, drop it. And later that night, I mean, you haven't seen this movie yet or haven't watched this movie yet, to my knowledge, but she has a very get out sequence where she, like, falls into this sunken place and she is drowning and she feels as though she can't resurface and she's losing time. So, again, we're realizing that Alice is very quickly losing this grip on whatever reality has been for her up until this point. So next, we see Dr. Collins makes a house call to check on Alice. He ends up prescribing medication for Alice, which Jack declines, which I think is interesting. He asks Jack to walk him to his car, and he briefly forgets his suitcase. And earlier, Alice had seen in his open suitcase that there was a file marked with Margaret's name that said security risk or something of that nature. So she quickly takes her opportunity to open his briefcase, steal the file, just in time to give him back his suitcase when he enters in for it. But when she opens the file to hopefully finally see what's going on with Margaret, we see that her file is completely redacted. There's no information that she can get from the pages, so she shuts everything frustratingly, but becomes, again, increasingly paranoid. I even wrote, do you think that only men can read it the way that it's set up? That's really interesting. There's only certain participants that are allowed to access that kind of information. Like, it's not actually what it looks like. That is really interesting because, yeah, that digital aspect does become such a part of this movie. Mm -hmm. So who's to say it's not coded into the system who can and cannot read? <gasps> it even says at the top of her file, discretion is a privilege. That makes me think of the Stepford Wives too, because we learn that the wives' vocabulary is hardwired into their own robot. Mm -hmm. Like, is this kind of an updated version of vocabulary? Like, you can or cannot read or be privy to certain information. Mm -hmm. Ooh, that's so interesting. So later, Alice gets more visions of the black and white dancers as she comes to in a bath. Jack enters, not really acknowledging that they had that talk with Dr. Collins earlier and says, listen, we have an event tonight, we're going to be late. And then he's like, let's have a baby, which again is jarring because we've heard that conversation at the pool earlier where Alice said they agreed that they didn't want that. And now he wants this. So it's like disorienting in all these types of ways, but they arrive at a party 
They see that the doctor and Frank are watching them from afar, which makes Alice very uncomfortable. There's this burlesque dancing performance, and this dancer matches her visions that she's been having. That's Gita Von Teese. Is it? Yes! Oh, I didn't know! In a very bejeweled music video moment, but in this movie. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> Alice gets more visions of Margaret's death, very much close up, the phone call, the plane crash, so you can tell she's beginning to, like, again, slip in and out of the present. Alice tells Jack, listen, I want to leave, I want to leave, just as Frank takes the stage. And as Frank takes the stage, he asks Jack to join him and grants him a promotion to the senior advisory board as Alice tearfully watches. So Jack goes up, and originally he's very stony-faced as he's presented with this ring. I said this is a little gay. It's an engagement. Yeah. Yeah. He's like putting this ring on this man, and I'm like, okay. And says, like, are you the man you say you are? So obviously we're seeing that this is a challenge from Frank to Jack. It's even so funny because as Jack accepts, he's forced into this weird marionetting dance where he's, like, throwing his body around and it looks very unnatural. But as the dance goes further on, Jack accepts that this is what he has to do in order to gain acceptance is do this song and dance, for lack of a better term. Mm -hmm. But meanwhile, Alice is very upset in the bathroom and Bunny tries to come comfort her. Yes, but Alice, you know, feeling comforted by Bunny, tries to tell her about her suspicions. She's afraid. She tells her that she went into the desert. She tells her what she saw. And Bunny, who we've always seen pioneering the whole do not go into the desert, follow the rules, she becomes very angry. She thinks Alice is jeopardizing the opportunity that they have in victory. And she's very upset, which of course makes Alice very upset. They kind of end in this angry place. So the next morning, Jack discusses his new role as Alice kind of listens on in very much discomfort. But then we're cut to a dinner party that is thrown by Alice where Alice is putting on her best housewife persona. She's welcoming Peg and her husband, Violet and her husband, but Bunny is not going to be in attendance, which is again highlighting the tension from the night before. It is then revealed that Frank and his wife Shelly are going to be special guests at this dinner, which is a big deal because Frank doesn't usually go to his employees' houses. As Frank and Shelly enter, it's this big deal. But then Frank approaches Alice in the kitchen and says, oh, I heard you're trying for a baby. Isn't that nice? But then there's some silence and he says, I'm sorry, Bunny didn't believe you. And he goes on to say, but then again, you didn't believe Margaret. So why should anyone believe you? My God, you fascinate me because I've been waiting for someone like you, someone to challenge me. No great men that have changed the course of history have gone without being pushed to his limits. And you push me and I do hope you keep going. And then there's an awkward pause as he advances on Alice and says, and yet here you are preparing dinner like a good girl. And it's like so sexually condescending and condescending (laughs) and powerful, but it's done so fucking well. Yeah. And especially like the quiet aside moment. And it kind of parallels that moment that she had with Jack at the party. They're in the bedroom. They think no one's looking, but there's all these people just outside. Mm. It's the same thing, but it's such a different moment. So they all sit for dinner and Alice pushes Jack out of the way to sit herself at the head opposite to Frank. I loved that was one of my favorite moments. Oh, yeah. I just didn't see it coming, but it's such a symbolic move. And of course, she's face to face with Frank. So they all sit for dinner and Alice kind of interrupts this mundane work conversation to ask Violet where she's from. And it's revealed through conversation that most of the women are all from Philadelphia, Baltimore or Chicago. They've all honeymooned in the same places. And even the story of how they met their husbands all match each other's. So Alice is talking about how all of their stories are the same. Isn't that weird? And isn't this such a weird coincidence? And as Alice brings up Margaret, Jack is trying his best to silence her. 
But Alice ends up going off, saying that Frankie's doing something to them. He's even the one that provides all this food. He's lying to them, but Frank is very easily able to insinuate that she's delusional, very much like Margaret was. He reveals that Alice went out to headquarters, which puts them all in danger. It's explicitly against the rules. Alice is trying to say that he's trapping them there, but I think this moment is really brought to its height when Shelly digs into her, calls her selfish, spoiled, desperate to be exciting, and telling her that she's spitting in the face of opportunity. I think that interaction ending with Shelly is so interesting because it's a woman digging into another woman. She'll challenge Frank all day long, but she doesn't back off until another woman puts her in her place, which Mm. she's done with Bunny this entire movie. True. Yeah. Yeah. Of course, everybody leaves the party very uncomfortably. (laughs) Left behind, just Alice and Jack, she begs him to leave. She's like, please, we have to go. And he initially agrees. And they pack everything. She's so happy. It's such a touching moment. We see him believing her. As they get into his car, he hesitates to start the vehicle. She asks him why he's not moving. They have everything. And oh my God, And even before she gets in the car, she's like, I packed a snack. (laughs) Like she's ready to go. But then he starts crying and saying he's sorry, right as those red jumpsuit men come and drag her away. There's this interesting moment we get an overhead shot as one of her shoes is left behind, which feels very Cinderella, Mm -hmm. which to me seems like a nod to the Disney references in The Stafford Wives. So kind of like this idea of, you know, women are often fed a fairy tale narrative, but there is corruption in that narrative. Jack is sobbing as Alice is being dragged away. She's saying she's sorry that she'll be better, that they're hurting her, but Jack is just there to leave her and allow her to be taken away from him. We see nurses strap Alice down and the doctor from earlier administering electroshock therapy. And during this, we see visions that Alice is having of Jack and Alice almost seemingly in another life in more modern clothing, dancing together in a living room. Alice is comforting Jack after losing his job and saying, I'll just pick up extra shifts. It'll be okay. And we see this reality for a little bit longer than we've seen in these flashbacks. Alice is pulling extra shifts as a surgeon, and even though Alice is the breadwinner and she's getting home late, Jack still finds a way to complain about dinner not being ready, how he hasn't eaten without her, because he doesn't know what she likes, even though it's clear that they've been together for a certain amount of time already. He's just been on his computer waiting up on her, as he's very much trying to be in community with her and get affection from her. She rebuffs his advances, being like, listen, I just worked a 30-hour day, I have to be back there in six hours. This obviously upsets Jack, and he stays up listening to Frank talking about how society has driven them away from their biological destiny, and I wrote, and lots of other incel talk. (laughs) Yeah, lots. Lots of it. Again, these scenes are intercut with her electric shock therapy back in Victory, and her treatment is over. She returns home. It seems briefly like she's reset back to this normal expectation for life in Victory, but we see when Jack reaches out to touch her and welcome her, she flinches with this very like body memory of what she has remembered in her electric shock therapy. So later, Jack gets home from work and starts singing the song that she has been humming all throughout this movie, like not sure where she could place it. Jack is singing it and it seems to bring back even more flashbacks. And we see more into Jack's decision to, I guess, knock her out, kidnap her in the real world, take her to a disclosed location, give information about his chosen nationality, the name of his chosen wife. 
Do they have a pre-existing relationship? Yes. Like answering this questionnaire to be let into this facility where she is then laid down, strapped up to some kind of goggle device. That- like a VR yeah. device. Yeah. Yes. He does the same. However, we learn that when the men leave for the day to go to work, that's really them exiting out of the virtual reality to take care of the literal physical well-being of their wife, or like at least drip water from a washcloth into her mouth, or I don't know, make money to keep them in this simulation for Frank, etc. Yeah, we even hear that he's applicant like 249, which is showing that there's a large community of men that want to return to some biological destiny or some other level of being where they feel valued as men and they can enter the simulation where their wives are doting on them and are sexually submissive and cater to their every need. They tried so hard to make Harry Styles ugly here because, I mean, like, he has, like... But this is where he's American. Yes. In the real world, he's... Well, the quote-unquote real world, he's American. So that's really interesting that you notice his accent coming in and out. That must have been intentional. Yeah. So Alice grimaces, falls, moans as she's realizing all of this information. Jack tries to reassure her she's just having another episode, but she faces him and says, What did you do? And he begins to realize the jig is up. He says, I love you. I can explain. You know, you were so miserable. Think about your life and what you actually want. I saved your life. You were so unhappy. You hated your job. You hated your life. She's like, it was my life. You don't get to take it from me. He goes on saying, I gave you all of this. I gave it to you. We're lucky to be here. Frank created this world where we get to live the life we deserve. I have to leave to make enough money to keep us here. And I fucking hate it. But you get to be happy here. We're perfect in here. Don't you want to be perfect with me? Again, manipulative, horrible. She goes on to say, you made me feel crazy. Jack goes on, hugs her, begs her to forgive him, apologizes. Through some more dialogue, we confirm that all of the men are responsible for their wives. The kids in the simulation aren't real, and the women don't know of their circumstance. He begins restraining Alice in a way that's painful, and as Alice begs to let go, she ends up hitting him over the head with a whiskey glass, and it kills him in the simulation and also in real life. Alice wakes up with the bleeding head of Jack on her abdomen. As Bunny comes in looking for Alice, she sees what has happened and she tells Alice, it comes out that she knew that victory was a simulation the whole time. And she knows that her children are not real. Children in the simulation are not real. She tells Alice that her children died in real life and she willingly decided to come to victory so she could keep them with her. And she tells Alice that she has to drive to headquarters to get out. That's how we find out, I guess, that Jack is dead in the real world, too. So, like, if she doesn't escape, like, not only is she in danger in this world, but Jack is also not there to drip water into her mouth. Originally, Alice seems pretty stunned. She's not making any moves. I think she's shocked based on the information that she has gotten and the actions that she has taken. But as she walks out into the cul-de-sac and her neighbors see her, we see this really interesting moment where the men are obviously very concerned, but the more the women like Peg and Violet look at Alice, the more we see a look on their face, like they understand or they are understanding her without her speaking that she is right, something is wrong and they are no longer safe. So I thought that moment was really interesting. Yeah, they're like pushing their husbands away from them. Like Uh they all seem to know. And we see the insecurity on the men right away. Like Dean's trying to restrain her and Bill's being like, they told us this wouldn't happen. They told us we were safe here. 
So we're really seeing the insecurity of these men come out so damn quickly. And I think this is shown by explosions happening around them. Like we Oh, yeah, the mailboxes, I think, yeah, are exploding. It, that, is that what it was? Like, I yeah, think. There's certain things that are, like, exploding. I, I'm like, are these are people getting lights? bombed? Like, there's something, but it's really showing that their security is blowing up around them. And the facade is blowing up. The white picket fence is blowing mm-hmm. up. She ends up being able to get into Jack's car and drive away, despite people trying to restrain her. The red suit men emerge and give chase in other cars. She ends up driving through the desert. There's some Mad Max shit that happens where, you know, men are trying to restrain her on both sides. The psychiatrist is coming at her from the other side. There's a big crash. She ends up surviving. So Frank ends up getting a call that Alice is broken from security. They're like, what do we do, boss? Like, what if she gets to the outside? There's no one there to put her back in if Jack is dead. And as he's contemplating this, he turns around and Shelly, his wife, fucking stabs him in the gut. Uh Uh-huh. Queen shit, which, I mean, I like the parallel between Bobby and Joanna. Yeah. Shelly says, you stupid, stupid man, it's my turn now. Which, like, what does that mean? I want to see Shelly's hunk man alternate reality. Like, that's what I want. I want to see that, too. And I want to know how long she's known. Like, I want to know, like, was she aware of their circumstance when they were having dinner at Alice's house? Or was she somebody like Bunny who willingly entered the simulation? Or has she just been playing, quote unquote, dumb this whole time Mm. to protect herself Mm -hmm. or wait for her moment? Exactly. I love it. We see Alice see these red suit men after her. She's running up the hill because her car breaks down because of course it does. She gets to the mirror, stops to catch her breath. She feels Jack's embrace behind her, begging her not to leave him there. We think that's going to be too late, but she ends up embracing the mirror just as the men reach her. We get some more distorted imagery of the past, the present, the real life, the fake life. We get a cut to black and Alice gasps for air. So we assume that she is waking from the simulation in real life. And that's the end of the movie. Okay, so let's get into the post plot because I have a couple things I want to talk about. Most of the stuff I have is on Don't Worry Darling, but I do want to start with the historical arena for the Stepford Wives. This is from an article called Why is Hollywood Still So Obsessed with the Stepford Wives by Kyle Turner. And he writes, between the publishing of Levin's novel, again, the original novel that spurred the making of this movie, and the release of the 1975 film adaptation, Roe vs. Wade had made abortion legal nationwide. The panic over that decision and over women's bodily autonomy in general is marrow deep within the Stepford Wives, in which the eponymous spouses are killed and turned into fembots who speak in commercial advertisements for cleaning products and shriek with pleasure at their husband's undoubtedly mediocre lovemaking. I think that this is important because we a lot of times talk about the historical context of our movies. We've done episodes about women's fears throughout history and how those are reflected in film. And of course, the writer makes connections to other films that focus on horror rooted in women's bodily autonomy that came out around this time, like the original Black Christmas, the original Carrie and The Brood show that obviously this historical moment in 1975 is what probably made the Stepford Wives so impactful. And especially as a film that directly deals with gender politics, a lot of those gender politics are much more, in comparison, subdued or less overt in the other films that existed during this time. This one is much more obvious. Oh, for sure. So then getting into the political influence for Don't Worry Darling, the same article also discusses the interesting idea that this is set in the 1950s. So Turner writes that the film, quote, looks like the 1950s, but it's an illusion of a time found in illustrated advertisements for better home cooking or dishware. 
When we do finally get a look at the outside world, far away from the perfectly round cocktail trays and smothering routines, it's grimy and dark, with Jack hunched over a computer listening to another man's dulcet tones, a podcasting red pill ready to transform the lives of unhappy men, with the click of a glasses-like device as if taken from an episode of Black Mirror. And that idea of the red pill is going to come up again later. Quote, an incel who feels he's been denied a good relationship because he thinks Alice works too much as a brain surgeon, Jack signs up for the expensive device and basically holds her hostage in a simulated world. Victory's leader, Frank, who's callous, Jordan Peterson and Elon Musk, if they actually had charisma, seductiveness, is not as dark as it could be, would travel to the 1950s for the kind of world where women are submissive to their husbands, but the film reveals this world is simply a construct. The Victory Project is just an idea of what that time in America was like for the privileged and powerful. And I think that line about the privileged and the powerful is really important. Like the Stefford Wives and this movie only shows this very like white, middle to upper class, patriarchal vision of America. It's very the American dream. Yes. But I also think it's interesting too, like in the Stepford Wives, I would be interested in reading more of the book and getting more of Ruth Ann's perspective because I think her moving into the neighborhood in the novel as a black woman with her black husband is really interesting. Like, I think it shows the pervasiveness of this corrupt American dream. And I feel like one of the things about the American dream is that over many, 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 many decades, like you can't talk about the American dream without talking about all the examples of literature and film that deconstruct the American dream. And I think that this narrative, like this kind of don't worry, darling and Stepford Wives connection also helps deconstruct that. I also don't think it's a mistake that the first like whistleblower for Don't Worry Darling is Margaret, who's a black woman. Yeah. So like the fact that she's the most in tune for what's going on and she's seen as this quote unquote like problem child of the community and is the first example of a woman stepping out of line is just kind of showing that when you're in a not privileged position, you're more privy to why that is and Mm -hmm. all the other circumstances that are going on. So the fact that she is the first person that we see to be aware that something is amiss, like I don't think is a mistake. She's the Ruth Ann parallel, but it's interesting because we meet her so close to the beginning of Don't Worry Darling as opposed to the end. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So Turner argues that overall, Wilde's film focuses more on replicating mid-century aesthetics than how feminist politics in the era of girl boss feminism have been sold to audiences. So it seems like she's using this era more for how it looks and feels versus what's actually happening at this time. So even in the wake of politically radical change, good or bad for women and other marginalized groups in different aspects of industry and life, like the Me Too movement, the 2016 presidential election, and the overturning of Roe v. Wade, the memification of political figures like Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez, people posting black squares on Instagram in 2020, Don't Worry Darling feels too insular to reach its political ambitions. In the confines of this world, the cracks of Alice's reality reveal little else but broad stroke ideas of unequal gender roles, as opposed to a more considered analysis of how power might function in the Victory Project. So Turner seems like he addresses the same things. Like, it seems like there's room here, but there's not enough being said. Hey, look, there's problems with gender. And it's like, "Uh (laughs) uh-huh. Like, what else do you want to say? Because that's the thing. I think my interest in this movie, I really like want to know more about that process that is put into a 30 second montage of how Jack enrolled him and Alice into this process, or even the decision of Bunny to stay within the simulation. Like I would have liked to see Bunny outside the simulation. I would have liked to see how bad a circumstance for women in 2022 has to be for them to prefer the simplified 
slavish lifestyle. Like I would have liked to see a little bit more of the present day. And I realized that wasn't the point because we weren't meant to be aware of it. But at the same time, it's like, oh, wow, isn't it shitty how people treat women? Like that's Mm -hmm. the point of the movie. And I can see how like the train stops there. So Turner also talks about the differences in the ways that technology is used in this movie. He writes, Don't Worry Darling does attempt to recontextualize the current phase of the feminist movement by placing its ideals in dialogue with contemporary forms of digital technology. The glasses Jack forces on Alice are a way of seeing, albeit into a man's retro-futurist world. Think Google Glass, but for incels. Meta, but for men's rights activists. Dreams of alleviated labor haven't changed much since the 2004 Stepford Wives remake, which does exist but we didn't talk about, but the persistence of tropes introduced in the original film might be evidence of the incompatibility between progressive politics and the capitalist ecosystems that swallow them whole. In Don't Worry Darling, futuristic technology is supposed to promise the characters a new future, but it does so by shackling everyone to the past. And even though the men in Victory Project talk a lot about going to work, it's the women who are providing all of the labor. Perhaps the biggest takeaway from Don't Worry Darling is that the Stepford aesthetic is a soothing, familiar, comfortable shorthand for conservatism and lack of progress and a site where inhabitants can opt out of having bigger political conversations. Utilizing the visual and spatial language of the Stepford Wives to help us understand our relationship to gender, labor, and technology makes it clear that the rights of women and other groups remain stuck, no matter how branded or digital-friendly. And as Marshall keenly puts it, the housewife is the best technology. Now who's buying? The Stefford Wives codes the fembot women in these like conservative, like Victorian era clothing, 1950s jobs. And then 2023, 50 years later, we are still pulling from that same era, those same expectations. It feels like we're stuck. And again, it's the idea that VR is meant to be futuristic and the only way that men in this movie can feel comforted is by regressing because they realize they're never going to be in a space where they can have the same lack of accountability as they did in the past. Mm -hmm. They always have to be accountable for not having a job, not showing up, not being the breadwinner. Like, of course, Alice, when she gets home from a 30-hour shift, isn't thrilled to see her boyfriend who's been on the computer all day and is going to greet him and be so happy that he didn't make her dinner because the expectations have changed. The rules have changed. So the fact that he gets to clock out and have this expectation where he's just adored for being allowed to work because otherwise in the 50s, women weren't allowed to in the same ways or be able to be successful in the same ways. Like, ugh. So I want to return again to that conversation we had earlier about other influences on the movie. Mm -hmm. So this is from a different article called Breaking Down the End of Don't Worry Darling by Elena Docterman. She writes that several influences exist in the movie, including, of course, the aforementioned Stepford Wives and Alice in Wonderland. But she also writes that the visuals borrow heavily from 1960s films like Sean Connery, James Bond movies, and also more recently from Mad Men. The stifling and mid-century marriage between Alice and Jack recalls that of Revolutionary Road, and Alice's realization that she is being gaslit and her eventual escape echoes the finale of Get Out. I said it! You said it! The simulation plot recollects films like The Truman Show and Pleasantville. Docterman elaborates more on another influence, which came up earlier, which is The Matrix. 
So she writes, quote, not only is there similarity to The Matrix, because the entire plot of the movie centers on the hero deciding to unplug from a beautiful looking but unreal simulation in favor of a grittier life in reality, but also because The Matrix's inadvertent influence on the language of men's rights activists. In The Matrix, the hero, Neo, must choose between a blue pill to continue his delusion or a red pill to wake up to reality. In certain corners of the internet, dissatisfied men use the term red pill to refer to the movement they, quote, realized that women allegedly run the world. Red pill forums on the internet have become a place where mostly white, mostly straight men air misogynistic views on women and bemoan their diminishing status in society. The creators of The Matrix, Lana and Lily Wachowski, both trans women, have since explained that The Matrix is actually an allegory for coming out as trans to the consternation of many men's rights activists. Did you know that? I did know that The Matrix was very LGBT, not for that reason. Like, I had heard the term red pill before Uh in terms of incels, and I knew The Matrix was queer, but I didn't realize that overlap was for that reason. So that's really cool to hear. Dr. Min continues to say, quote, Wilde has specifically cited these dark corners of the internet as inspiration for the villains of the film. One can easily imagine Jack identifying himself as someone who was red-pilled when he felt emasculated by his wife's earning potential. He sought refuge among a community of men yearning for a time when men controlled women's bodies and behavior. Ironically, in Wilde's movie, these red-pilled men profusely delude themselves in order to gain back power instead of living in reality. Wilde told fellow director Maggie Gyllenhaal in Interview Magazine that she based Chris Pine's character specifically on one such incendiary thinker, Jordan Peterson. Peterson has gained devotees among such men who blame advancements in gender relations for their misery. He has made a career of inflammatory statements about trans rights, gender pronouns, and gender equality. So all of that seems very intentional. Yeah, 100%. I was even thinking today before we started recording, It is amazing that in a podcast like ours, we have gone so long without talking about incels. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Just the fact that they're out there and they seem to be obviously like a small but powerful minority. But if you really think about how little people it actually takes to overturn Roe v. Wade, if you look at how many people are in that room and the ideas that infiltrate those kinds of decisions... It is men promoting other men for doing mediocre work, continuing to rule at the top. I always think about that scene with Chris Pine and Harry Styles where Frank is promoting Jack because he probably sees Jack as somebody who's going to doubt him the most. And he realizes he needs to pull him in and he's probably the most humanistic to his wife and he needs to find a way to reset him, set him in line. And that's what changes the entire arc of the story. Because yeah, in that moment where you were talking about how Jack tells the doctor that his wife doesn't need medication, I'm like, oh my gosh, that's so great. That's so supportive. Like I wasn't expecting that in the turn of the story, but it just makes Jack's 180 so much more hard to stomach, you know? And it makes me wonder what the medication even is. Like, what is the medication that makes Jack say no? I mean, he's already agreed this far to get her into the simulation and keep her there. Even when she's very clearly having a difficult time, what does the medication do? I mean, I guess it's just to sedate them more, but I don't think he wants to admit that he doesn't have a handle on the situation. (sighs) Mm, I think that makes perfect sense. Yeah. I believe that. So that brings me to some general thoughts. So one of the first themes I recognized in this movie that I feel like is much more prevalent than in the original The Stefford Wives is weaponized incompetence. So this is like a relatively, it's not a relatively new thing, but it's a relatively new term. I looked it up. It's, I guess, stems from around like 2006. 
that is used to describe when an individual pretends not to know how or when or why they need to do something, which forces another person to do it for them. And this makes me think very much of that uncomfortable dinner scene when Jack literally did not know you needed to boil potatoes for mashed potatoes. Mm This is also a term I've seen used a lot on TikTok in tandem with other buzzwords like narcissistic tendencies and gaslighting, which is a favorite of ours. And it's mostly, at least from what I've seen, men who these terms are being applied to. And so I think that this movie focuses on that. And of course, that article that we just discussed, Turner even mentions that like these men being willing to literally put themselves in an alternate reality instead of face the fact that maybe they need to learn a couple things or pick up the slack in other areas that they have been dropping that their partner needs their help in. And I feel like in the original movie, the gender dynamics there, you know, we saw women working through them, but men just being very comfortable where they were. In this movie, we see glimmers especially with Jack, where he does recognize that he's doing something wrong. I mean, I guess maybe we see that a little bit with Walter, but there's something here like with this cooking scene, this want to appease his wife, which brings me to the title, which I'm interested in because I always thought it was read as like, don't worry, comma, darling, like don't worry, darling, as a reassuring statement, but there is no comma in the title. And so it can be read as if it's like a warning not to worry, darling, like don't worry, darling, Mm -hmm. which is interesting. Is the darling, the nameless woman in the simulation being kept ignorant? Or is it from a woman's perspective who's thinking, don't worry, darling, like don't anger my husband, keep a low profile, Mm. keep my head down. So I feel like after reading all of these things, I looked at the title a little bit differently because there is no Leonardo DiCaprio sitting on the couch pointing at the TV moment. No. So I'm like, where did the title come from? And so those were just kind of my thoughts. And it leads me to thinking about Shelly, too, because we have to assume that Shelly has been in the simulation the longest if Frank is the leader, and Frank is probably the one who has, like, piloted, maybe having to do with the plane. I'm looking at your questions here. (laughs) having Having to do with, you know, the program. So it's giving me the idea of how long is it that women are within a situation before they wake up. We've even talked about the idea of cycles of abuse and knowing that you're living in a situation that doesn't benefit you, but not being able to like clearly see it for what it is, not being able to see yourself in the mirror. And we see the images of women looking at themselves in the mirror very often as a sense of knowing in this movie. So again, it makes me wonder how long was Shelly awake? How long did Shelly have to be in the simulation to realize that that isn't what she deserved or that wasn't what's normal? And was it Alice's rebellion that made Shelly look at herself and realize this isn't what I need? Because I feel like a lot of the time, the behavior will tell on itself. Mm. Like, obviously, women have been able to make the strides that they have because there was a collective understanding of you're seeing this too, right? Mm -hmm. And even that scene in the cul-de-sac, I think, is so powerful where there's no words said, but all Alice has to do is look around at all these women and they're like, yeah, Mm -hmm. like, I see everything that you're telling me right now and you're not even saying anything at all. So are those those first moments of waking up? Like, no matter how much you're disillusioned into thinking that you're in a situation that benefits you. There's always going to be an end to that. That makes me think. So I just finished my most recent grad class. And so your comment about are we looking at like an allegory for when do women wake up? 
There's a book called The Street by Anne Petrie. It's from like mid-century. And there's a character in that book who tries really, really hard to kind of adhere to the expectations for the American dream by working hard, saving money so she can get her and her son a proper home for them to live with, right? According to society. And there's an article that talks about that book. I forget who it's by. But he talks about how one of the reasons she quote unquote fails is because she's trying to adhere to a model of the quote unquote American dream that does not serve her. And there are other women in the book who end up surviving because they subvert the American dream. Like they recognize that they are at a disadvantage and they move stealthily to survive, which makes me think of Shelley. Did she wake up and move stealthily to subvert it? And then I also think of Margaret. Is it that she was relying too much on getting other people on her side? Was she too troubled by what she learned? She couldn't subvert it. She had to take her own life. There was also something in an article I read that wondered if women experience the same fate as the men. Like if women die in the simulation, do they also die in real life? Because it's never said. I would assume yes, but what if they don't? Like what if Margaret is walking around somewhere in the real world? Like we don't know if she's actually dead in real life. We know that she was taken out of the simulation. Was she finding a way to subvert the dream or did she fail subverting that dream? And same with Alice. She killed her husband. She drove away. Of course, she had the help of Bunny, which is like a woman helping a woman, which we didn't see too much in this film. But like, did she subvert it? Did she find a way out with information from Bunny? It's making me think of that book, like this idea of women trying to adhere to some kind of model, but they're going to keep failing again and again unless they, and I don't want to make generalizing statements. I'm not trying to sound preachy, but like, again, this book and this class and this theory is kind of on my mind. Like, how do women subvert that dream? I've always kind of thought of gossip as that dream. Like we see scenes in this movie with women gossiping and sharing information. That's always what women have had to do, share information behind closed doors under the guise of mindless chatter. But really they're exchanging information. They're sharing intel. And again, that's ultimately how Bunny gets Alice the information she needs to know to go back up to headquarters, place her hands on the glass again and get out. So it's kind of like interesting, like this exchange of information, this idea of the American dream, women's place in it. I don't know. There's a lot going on in my head. It's also the idea of like the lifting as you climb type of situation where Bunny realizes that there's not going to be a better situation for her. Mm. Like she doesn't want what she wants Alice to have. And she's never going to have what she wants Alice to have. And I think that she does realize in her heart of hearts that she needs to be a lady's lady. Like she tried her best to keep her in line, to keep her happy. But once she realized that Alice was in a place that she was going to be punished for what she did, that they were going to come after her, she was like, no, get out, escape, I'll distract. I'll throw my own husband to the ground. I'll do whatever. But she's like, I'm not going to escape. And she accepts that she's trying to make another woman's situation better, even if she can't have it herself. That could be her way of subverting the dream. Yeah, exactly. You're right. She accepts it. She chooses it. But that doesn't mean she still can't see it for what it is. Mm Mm-hmm. We see all of them doing something different. Like we see Margaret calling it out very blatantly and it obviously not serving her. We see Shelly, who we've learned to be subverting it maybe the entire time mm-hmm. and acting like she's with it and she's not. We see Bunny, who's strong, strong with it, mm-hmm. but still allowing for flexibility in that space. And then we see, you know, Violet and Peg, it's a little too early to tell. We see Peg beginning to question it, and it's really just about how much support does she have from the women around her to support her in her thoughts, and she doesn't receive it, so she doesn't pursue it further. But what if she had gotten somebody like Margaret in the circle being like, you know what, I think about that too, 
how could the course of the movie have changed? Would they have created the Women's Association? Would they have all escaped? We don't know. And what's going to happen with Alice when she wakes up? She has all of these memories of this reality that she can't prove the existence of. She's going to have a dead boyfriend next to her. Like, is it better? It's the Matrix. Red pill, blue pill. She chose the less glamorous, gritty life in honor of the truth. None of us are housewives anymore. At least we're not. (laughs) We're certainly not. You know, being a housewife isn't just... From what I'm learning, it's the emotional labor. It's the heart and soul of the house. It's managing. It's a full-time job. It's like when I was an RA and I lived where I worked, I hated it. Being a housewife, it's like times 100. It's a job that simultaneously society needs. Like that quote said earlier, it's the best technology. But at the same time, I think over the years, you know, women who have been housewives have been degraded or they have been relegated to that role simply because of the work that needs to be put in. Nobody else wants to share the burden. And I feel like the narrative is really changing around that. You know, especially with heteronormative couples, I'm hoping that it's changing. I feel like couples with women, (laughs) I feel (laughs) like they get it because they know because they're fucking women (laughs) and they know what that feels like to have been socialized in that way but you know with men i'm hoping that things are going to change to make people understand that no it's not just this clear division of the woman takes care of the house and the men just asks what he can do it's just like there's no room for weaponizing competence Mm -mm. in queer women relationships at least because it's like i know you know how to do this because we've all been taught to have to think about these things we've all been taught It's very much a pressure to be as equal of a partner. Speaking for myself, being in a queer relationship, being queer, it is a pressure to be as equal as a partner as you can as to not perpetuate or relegate the idea that you are anything like weaponized incompetence because, okay, you don't know how to cook a meal? Google it. You don't know how to sew something? Watch a YouTube tutorial. We're very much taught that if you don't know how to do something, you better figure it out because your man's probably not going to do it. And I don't want to speak generally or broadly because obviously I think there's a lot of men who are realizing that women don't expect very much of them and they are stepping up to the plate, but also at the same time, maybe not. I don't know. These conversations are happening, at least from what I'm seeing on TikTok. There was a woman on there talking about the other day, she was talking to a lawyer about like the most common reason for breakup or divorces these days. And he mentioned something about division of responsibility in the house. There's communication happening, but nothing is getting through. And women are realizing like, hey, it is easier for me to get you off my plate and keep doing what I was always doing and just adding maybe taking out the trash once a week instead of trying to manage you and communicating with you. And parent you. Exactly. This is where we are. It's 1950, baby. (laughs) We are here. And that's our Housewives episode. Yeah, not to be super pessimistic. But I thought these movies were both really great. I thought they were good food for thought. I thought there was a lot of really cool stuff about them. I had seen the Stafford Wise before, but I was pleasantly surprised with how much I loved it on my rewatch. I felt like I picked up on so much more. So definitely watch these. So we're going to be taking a little bit of a spring break next week. Yes. And when we come back, we'll be back with some more horrific shit in a different direction, as we always do. Hell yeah. Trying to keep it different. If you want to follow us on Instagram to keep up with our antics, please follow us on Instagram at The Horrors Podcast, or feel free to email us if you want to get in touch at thehorrorspodcast at gmail.com. And until next time, we're The Horrors. Bye. Bye. Bye.